everyone! Welcome back to Building Local Power from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Hippo Murray, Communications Manager, and today we're bringing you an interview between Stacy Mitchell, ILSR's co-director, and Sanjekta Paul, law professor and antitrust and labor expert. Zach is with me today to give you a sneak preview of the conversation. Hey, Zach. Hey, Hibba. So what I thought was really interesting was that antitrust law doesn't always work the way it's designed to work or protect the people it's supposed to protect. What did you think? Yeah, totally. Our antitrust laws were originally written to help workers and small businesses from corporate monopoly power. But if you look around today, small businesses and especially workers and unions are severely constrained by antitrust law. While businesses like Amazon and Walmart had the go-ahead to do whatever they want for a long time now, those are really the results of political decisions, as Professor Paul goes into during the podcast. Antitrust law really determines kind of who gets to coordinate for a better deal. Another interesting part of the conversation um, was how Stacy and Professor Paul talk about how economics can't always deliver us the answer in all cases, right? There isn't really like an objective economic equilibrium because what we're really talking about is how we balance competing interests and even more than that, competing values. So if you look at the history of antitrust enforcement, economics has really been weaponized against uh, unions and small businesses in favor of corporate monopoly power. And so that's why it's so great that Professor Paul is studying the history of these laws so closely and how they've been enforced because if we are going to take back power we need to know how the other side won so we can avoid making those same mistakes again awesome so we hope you enjoyed this sneak preview and stay tuned for the full episode well hello sanjakta thanks so much for being on the podcast hi stacy i'm really happy to be here thanks for having me So you started out your career working for many years as a labor lawyer. Um, Tell me how you ended up bumping into antitrust and getting involved in antitrust law. I was doing really a mix of labor and civil rights and employment work on behalf of workers and plaintiffs um, in the Los Angeles area. And I was working on, you know, essentially like a year long special project um, with an organizing campaign through a nonprofit, uh, LA Alliance for a New Economy, which does a lot of great work in that area, um, working in the port trucking sector. So the Southern California ports, Los Angeles and Long Beach are, you know, at this point handle the highest volume of any port in North America. Most of our consumer goods come through that port and there are many, many truck drivers who basically work in on those short short haul routes from the ports to you know all the warehouses that you've heard of um, that Walmart and the big box stores and the other retailers have um, a little bit inland in Southern California. So that's actually a, a pretty large sector uh, in in Southern California. And this was a workforce that was unionized um, back in the you know through the 1970s and up up through the very very early 80s and had pretty stable middle class jobs and it's a sector where the bottom really dropped out following trucking deregulation and then following you know just kind of rampant price competition among the trucking companies uh, in the 80s exactly as big box retailing was actually sort of becoming big and so therefore the buyers. Um, were also becoming more powerful and had essentially 
you know, controlled that market, the, the actual short haul trucking market. Anyway, so th that's a little bit of the history of it. I got involved in the campaign um, to basically work on reorganizing um, into unions those those drivers in that sector. Um, this is uh, several years ago now. And this by the time I was involved and for several years prior, these were not good jobs. So what had been previously, you know, union jobs, stable, you know, pretty you know, mid-wage um, had become definitely low-wage jobs way, way over 40 hours. So kind of a classic sweatshop labor scenario. In fact, Michael Belzer wrote a, a great book about trucking and trucking deregulation called Sweatshops on Wheels, um, which I really recommend. Long story short, I'm working on this campaign and what I learned was that antitrust law had actually played um, a significant role in the early days of this campaign, way before my time, in shaping what it could do and what was possible because these drivers were classified as independent contractors. So by the time, you know, in our campaign, we were working on trying to get them classified as employees. But the reason we were doing that I mean, there were many reasons, but one reason we really it was so important to do that was because any of their organizing activity, any type of collective action to better their wages or working conditions, or certainly to organize into a union, would be, if they were not employees, would be conventionally considered by antitrust law to be anti-competitive, to be a violation of antitrust law, and would subject them to, you know, potentially criminal liability and to trouble damages. And that, in fact, um, way before my time in the late 90s and early 2000s, that is exactly what had happened, that they had, um, you know, engaged in collective action on their own, strikes and walk-offs off the job, and um, had been hit with lawsuits wow. under antitrust law. And in fact, the FTC opened an investigation into worker leaders, like just truck driver worker leaders who are trying to, you know, make um, their workplaces a better place for everyone. And so as a result of that, that shaped everything that happened thereafter. Immediately engaging in collective action was off the table. And Stacey, that was huge because if you can't organize people to engage in collective collective action, it takes a lot of organizing tools off the table. Um, right. So to come back to, I guess, how I got into antitrust. So, you know, I learned about some of that, you know, when I was working on the campaign. And at the time, I knew nothing about antitrust law. And I, I just filed it away in the back of my brain and thought, well, that's really weird. Like antitrust law being used against truck drivers who are trying to make a living wage. This is bizarre. And so then as it turned out, um, kind of unconnected to that, when I sort of finished up that project, I had this opportunity to start a, a research and teaching fellowship at UCLA and had the opportunity to kind of research anything that I wanted to research. And this is what I chose to do um, and just went down um, a rabbit hole that I have yet to emerge from, partly because, so even though this sort of started out as seeing this as an obstacle to worker organizing, now my perspective is that actually working people's perspective is integral to antitrust law and really originally was inter and you know, as you know um, is what created antitrust law and it's actually been you know massively changed since since uh, particularly since the 1970s also you know as I went deeper into this rabbit hole discovered 
colleagues and comrades who, you know, coming at it from different angles. Um, and we've just, you know, learned so much from each other, including, uh, including meeting you and discovering that actually what I saw as an obstacle and is still an obstacle um, can also be turned into a way of reforming antitrust law in a direction that it really needs to go. Yeah, I, I'm really eager to talk with you about sort of where we go from here and, and how, as you put it, you know, worker voices can really be part of how we reshape um, antitrust law and actually make it work for uh, decentralizing power, you know, what it was what it was originally intended to. But before we get there, I want to dig uh, in a little bit on, you know, understanding exactly how antitrust impedes workers. Um you know, because I, I think people, um, you know, are familiar with the idea that we've allowed a lot of mergers, that we haven't been policing Walmart, for example, in terms of their predatory conduct. Like we've had this lax attitude, you know, our policymakers have had this lax attitude uh, with applying our antitrust laws to big business. But I think for most people, it's a little bit of you know, will be a little bit of a shock to learn that antitrust has been actually actively going after ordinary people uh, who have no real economic power. So can you give us like some examples to help people understand how that happens? So certainly the truck drivers I mentioned, you know, so this is way before the gig economy or Uber or anything like that. You know, we have a large number of workers in our country now who basically labor beyond the bounds of employment, you know, whether, you know, some are probably misclassified, some are not, um, but they basically are basically workers. They are people who you know, primarily are selling labor or services on the market. And those folks, um, even though this is totally contrary, in my opinion, to the original intention of antitrust law and what the legislators intended, um, those folks would conventionally be treated by antitrust institutions and antitrust law today as just independent businesses, you know, so people who are not receiving a W-2, but are receiving a 1099, you know, they're, those folks coordinating among each other to sort of vet either either engaging in joint bargaining with, you know, a more powerful buyer or supplier, or um, in the case of the truck drivers actually going on strike, anything like that would be considered collusion, um, anti-competitive activity under Section 1 of the Sherman Act. And so that would include, um, as I said, any independent contractor worker, um, really anyone, whether it is a truck driver or a hairstylist or a court reporter or a translator or, you know, any of those folks, it would also include sort of what we now consider um, gig economy workers or platform workers. So Uber drivers, TaskRabbit, you know, anything like that. And then finally, I would give a final example, um, which would include, you know, small businesses and franchisees and um, other kind of micro enterprises, obviously, there's different definitions of small business. But oftentimes, that category also includes people who might have a few employees, or it might be a few people together in a partnership. Um, or it might be someone who has some capital investment, you know, maybe they own some land, or maybe they own a truck, or they own, you know, something else that's some amount of capital investment, but they're really primarily still bringing their labor or services, their effort, you know, to, to market. Um, they're not primarily managing a bunch of other people or um, hiring a bunch of other people to work, you know, in a factory or some other type of 
capital investment, right? So those folks too often don't have a lot, as you know, don't have a lot of power in our economy. Franchisees are a great example. And economist Brian Kalachi, who's done great work on this, um, has shown how franchisees did try to organize. And at one time it was actually considered as a policy solution for them to have kind of NLRA style, you know, labor style collective bargaining rights. And that was rejected. But you can see a lot of the rationale for them having those collective bargaining rights. In the absence of all of that, and in the presence of the proliferation of kind of work beyond the bounds of the legal employment relationship, we really have antitrust law increasingly functioning as an obstacle to the organizing efforts of, frankly, the very people that antitrust law was originally intended to help, even as antitrust law, as you know, has been rendered somewhat impotent as to what it is actually supposed to do, which is to go after the powerful actors in the economy who may not be using that power very responsibly. It's really astonishing and you when you think about it. I I ran into this myself a few years ago and was sort of surprised. So if as the example I ran into is that uh, independent bookstores. So if you add up all the independent bookstores across the country, they are maybe 15% of the book market, something like that. But they have to be careful. They can't like band together and negotiate with publishers. They can't say, okay, we're all going to feature, you know, we've, we've, as a group, have sort of decided that these 20 books that are coming out this month are really great, and we're going to feature them, and we want to ask publishers to help support that with additional marketing dollars, or we want to negotiate over, over prices. Um, that gets them into hot water with antitrust. And yet, you have Amazon which captures half of all book sales, right? They can go negotiate with a publisher and there they are, they're sitting there, you know, with three times as much market share. They can have an internal meeting and set prices or do anything and antitrust has nothing to say about that. That's, you know, 100% correct and just such a perfect example. Um, no, so that that is exactly right. And that is why I think these two things are actually deeply connected. Tell me a little bit about that link and, and, and like the history of how we got here. You know, as we were kind of both talking about before, when when antitrust law was actually passed, when the first federal antitrust legislation was passed, the Sherman Act in 1890, that was really the product of a farmer labor coalition and, you know, is widely acknowledged by historians who, who study the topic. When you read the legislative record of the, of the Senate discussions, which is what I spent a chunk of my summer this last summer doing, um, how many times they actually referred to that fact? You know, the senators would say, well, it's the farmers and the workers who have sent these cries, these pleas up to us and, you know, ask us to act on this, right? Um, so that, so that, it's pretty clear that that is the coalition that, that drove that version of the anti-monopoly movement that resulted in the Sherman Act. And it was absolutely not on the table that cooperation among farmers or among workers and farmers, if you think about it, were you know clearly very much like your independent booksellers that you're talking about. These are people who definitely work for a living, um, but who do have some investment. You know, they do own that land um, and might have some employees and uh, and workers. Um, and there was also a lot in addition to pushing for antitrust legislation, this coalition was also really fostering cooperation and solidarity among themselves. Now, that didn't always go perfectly, no movement does, but it was one of their aims, right? So it was cultivating solidarity 
went, you know, among working people and among um, just ordinary people went alongside breaking up power structures that were seen as harmful. So those two were always supposed to go together. And the push for this and the the senators acknowledge that. And you see them time and again talking about that. And actually, when you read carefully read the debate, what you discover is that they talked about how they should write the bill to avoid the courts interpreting it against workers and farmers. So they talked about that. They were worried that the courts would do that um, for reasons that already had to do with the dynamic of, between courts and the Congress at the time. Um, and the you know we were just entering what's called the Lochner era in kind of our legal history, which is, of course, the era in which courts struck down things like minimum wage legislation, um, maximum hours legislation in kind of the emerging industrial workplace um, on the basis of, quote unquote, freedom of contract, which really was more about um, expanding the property rights of the people who were like winning in that economy, the people who owned the factories um, and the railroads and so forth. And this is like the 1890s turn of the century. Is that the right period? Yeah, I think technically the Lochner era started sometime during the 1890s and then through the 1920s, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that was definitely already happening, you know, at the time that they were deliberating on this bill in 1889 and 1890. So I think they saw the writing on the wall and they were they were worried about drafting the statute in a way to avoid that. And so, in fact, um, I think that they in fact, the bill went through different versions and they actually rewrote the bill at one point because one Senator Platt gave a speech saying that, look, if we go forward with this bill as it is now, and that was an earlier version of the bill that isn't what got passed, then we really can expect the courts to interpret it this way against farmers and workers and also against just small dealers and small small sellers in general. What's really interesting is that they're having that whole discussion and debate, but it's evident that they all want to avoid that result. There's almost just basically zero debate about that. Like we all want to avoid that result. How do we avoid it? And then right after Platt gives that speech, they go, they send the bill back to committee and they rewrite it um, into pretty much the version that we have today of the Sherman Act. And, um, you know, it's my belief and certainly earlier scholars who studied this issue also concluded the same thing that it w- they rewrote the bill and thought they had taken care of the problem, right? And that, mm-hmm. that they had taken out sort of this language about um, passing on the cost to consumers and full and free competition. They'd taken out that language and they thought that was going to be what possibly would lead the courts to interpret it against kind of like smaller actors in the economy. And of course, as we now know, the courts just went ahead and did that anyway, right? Um, and without getting into why they did that so much and the reasoning they used, they did that in um, a few early cases and essentially the Sherman Act was turned into a strike-breaking tool for the federal government at a time when the labor, you know, industrialization in production had really just taken off. And so the industrial working class was growing and so just to explain the link, and then at the, at the same time, it was, you know, very, the act was used in a very limited way against sort of actual corporate monopoly. And I think the two things are linked in, in, the, in the law that the judges developed at the time, um, 
because essentially what judges did in some of those early cases is they focused on property rights. So that same thing that was such a big deal in the Lochner era in general, um, they basically said, and they went back and forth a little bit, so not all the justices agreed, but they ultimately sort of said that, you know, shareholders have a kind of um, property right in the corporation, or they, they extrapolated from that, and we can't really interfere with that um, effectively is what they said. And so what grew up around that is what I actually have started calling the firm exemption, or we could call it the trust exemption to antitrust mm -hmm. law. Right. So that basically, if you're a firm, if you're a corporation, um, anything you do, not quite anything, but certainly a lot of things that you just would not be able to do outside the corporation are just presumptively legal inside of it. And that sounds maybe in some sense obvious now. Right. Like because we're mm -hmm. so, so used to that idea that, of course, firms can just set prices, firms can just. But. This is not what they were contemplating. So at the same time that I told you what they were saying in the legislative history about workers, at the same time, they're talking about the Standard Oil Company and John D. Rockefeller. And it is so interesting because the trusts that they were targeting, that's why it's called antitrust legislation, right? Um, the trusts that they were targeting were actually these effectively large firms, right? Like the, the only reason they weren't single firm, the only reason the Standard Oil Trust wasn't a single firm in 1889 was because state corporate law basically made that still pretty difficult. State corporate law was changing and state corporate law previously had made like interstate asset acquisitions and mergers much more difficult than it would be now. And so it was almost like state corporate law was functioning as a type of antitrust law um, through much of that time. But it was changing under this, actually under the same forces. And so um, there are legal historians who have written about this and also socio sociologists how um, the rise of financial capital that was happening at the same time in New York City resulted in the rewriting of New Jersey's corporate code. So now we think of, you know, corporations are all headquartered in Delaware. Well, New Jersey was the first Delaware. And effectively, it was um, the first Wall Street lawyers who really rewrote that corporate code. And um, Charles Yablon has written um, a great article about this and William Roy as well, a sociologist who wrote a book called Socializing Capital, um, if people want more information about that topic. But so basically what happened was state corporate law was what was transforming. And then also the Supreme Court in the Lochner era was going to uh, put limits on states' ability to to impose those limits. And then finally, even if there hadn't been those kind of legal limits and changes on state corporate law, there was a limit to what an individual state could do in a market that was becoming a national market, right? So like if the threat was that if Ohio, which by the way, continued to have pretty progressive radical corporate law until pretty late, um, had just like stood out there in the wind and, you know, continue to take this position, right? The idea is like, well, you can just go incorporate in Delaware or New Jersey and you just like lose all this business. And that was a lot of the impetus for federal antitrust legislation that, okay, we need to have the federal government do this. Right. Because we start to sort of have these like corporations that are spreading across state lines at that at that point, in some ways, a new thing, railroads as well. And so at that point, like the ability of states to keep corporations in check is really waning. 
it happened earlier in the railroads and then it ha started happening in material production after that because there was a period of time when you know there, there were, we had sort of railroads operating in the national market but material production manufacturing basically had not moved over into sort of a national corporate model at all it was still done in workshops and things like that um sherman and the other senators were very much talking about Standard Oil and the Sugar Trust and these other trusts that basically were in name only multiple firms. The brilliant innovation of the trust was, OK, we're going to get around state corporate law by creating this board of trustees that is centralized. It's basically just like the board of directors in a corporation now. And that's what they are. Right. And so in the Standard Oil Trust, you have all these different little standard oils and then all the shareholders and all those different little standard oils basically give over their voting power to the this board of trustees then, that then holds their share certificates in trust for the actual shareholders right so the, but then now they're exerting the control and so john d rockefeller is on that board of trustees and it's just like he's like the chairman of the board right in in a corporation today and so effectively the standard oil trust is is operating as as a corporation and yet the senators, that's whose power they wanted to break up, basically what was effectively a single corporation. And they even talked about single companies as well. And they just, I don't think they had an idea of the firm exemption as we as we know it today. Um, and then those exact same trusts, because as state corporate law did get liberalized through the 1890s, particularly in New Jersey and in other places too, they just went ahead and incorporated. So then they they just like got rid of the board of trustees and they just engaged either in directly acquiring shares of the constituent corporations or asset acquisitions. They did it in different ways, but then essentially those did become, um, in most cases, single firms, sometimes with a holding company structure and sometimes just directly um, through asset acquisitions. And those were the entities that the that the Sherman Act was aimed at. So even though today, I think if we don't stop and think about it, it might seem like, oh, well, of course, Amazon can do that. You know what you were saying, like have that internal meeting. And of course, they can do that. That's just sort of normal and natural. But that is exactly, I think, what Sherman was talking about, you know, when he was talking about um, Rockefeller sitting there with the board of trustees, very similar to that internal meeting that Amazon can have. Um, meanwhile, antitrust law is being turned, as you said in that example, um, against the independent booksellers who are just trying to um, keep a foothold in that market. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Building Local Power. I wanted to ask as we get here towards the end of 2019, if you might consider making a donation to support ILSR's work. We're a nonprofit organization and we depend uh, quite a bit on donations from individuals to make our work happen. Uh, if you can kick in a few bucks, that would be great. This is the time of year as we as we close out the calendar where we're really hustling to meet our fundraising goals. And so it makes a big difference. It's a great help to us and it really will help us kick off 2020 in a big way. You can donate to help support this podcast, but the podcast, of course, is only a small part of what we do. It's a kind of side hustle to our main work, which is that we uh, work with communities across the country to help them build local power, take control over their broadband networks, their energy systems, rebuild independent local businesses. And of course, we knit all of that together with advocacy at the state and federal level to change the policy 
policies that uh, impact local economies and local communities. So in the last year, we've helped a lot of cities build publicly owned broadband networks and take power back from the broadband monopolies. We've helped cities like Birmingham and Tulsa uh, block the proliferation of dollar stores and dollar store saturation and put in place policies to support local grocers instead. Uh, we've helped cities think about how to reconfigure their energy systems and rebuild uh, local recycling and composting infrastructure to uh, both take power back from big waste and also to uh, protect the climate. Uh, so we're doing a lot of great work. You can read more about it on our website at ILSR.org. And if you'd be so kind as to click that donate button, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, we're back. You know, one of the things I really like about uh, the papers that you've written on this and, and the article you did for the American Prospect, we'll link to all of that on the show page for this episode, um, is really have a great way of... of like helping people step back from the assumptions, you know, the the world we live in is not, there isn't necessarily a logic to things that we just assume that's the way it is. So I want to jump ahead here um, because we've done a few uh, podcast episodes where we've uh, covered like the history of of antitrust policy. So, you know, that period after the Sherman Act when uh, the courts are very much using it, not as you point out in, in the way that that Sherman and other lawmakers at the time intended, but they're, the courts are then misinter- you know, interpreting in exactly the opposite direction, uh, allowing corporate power to grow, using these laws against worker organizing. Then we have the New Deal, and things sh- uh, shift around for a few decades, and then we come to the 70s and 80s, and we sort of enter the era that we're in now, really driven by um, kind of a return in many respects to some of the thinking that was the early part of the 20th century that you were talking about, the Lochner era. Um, and we and we have Bork, you know, uh, right right in the middle of all of this and his thinking about, about antitrust. So one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about is sort of how the notion of efficiency fits into all of this because, um, or, or even consumer welfare, because I think the way that, that, you know, one way that people have thought about it is like, well, if you have a bunch of, of small producers like farmers or you have a bunch of small merchants or you have a bunch of workers in an industry and they get together and they band together in order to get a fairer wage or a decent price for their work, um, that might mean that consumers are paying higher prices. Like some of the logic, at least, that we've internalized around corporations being allowed to um, to do that is that we sort of picture like Walmart is driving a hard bargain. You know, it's like it's driving a hard bar- bargain with workers and it's driving a hard bargain with suppliers demanding the lowest prices. And in the end, consumers get something out of that. How does antitrust think about efficiency? Like, do you think there's good efficiency and bad efficiency? And is that part of what maybe is missing in the law? That brings up, I think, so many things that I because I think that we need to work through. Like, if we are going to remake antitrust, I think we need to sort of honestly grapple with some of these things. Um, but let me say a little bit about why I think it's, that certainly what we have is not um, at, at all obviously true or right. I don't think that the lowest consumer prices were the goal of the law at all, and I and I'm not the only person certainly who thinks that. I think an honest reading of the legislative history again, shows that 
um, legislators were just as concerned about monopolies increasing prices on consumers as they were with actually forcing down the prices of small suppliers and farmers and workers. I mean, they say that, you know, repeated times. And so it is really more about that power um, that than it is about the lowest consumer prices. So they repeatedly say um, driving down the prices of suppliers is is an antitrust harm, right? And the thing is, that's recognized today as well, like even within the kind of dominant framework that still you know exists in antitrust law in in this sort of idea of monopsony, which of course you're familiar with, like the idea of of there being buyer power as well as seller power. But the problem is, so so, so sort of like I feel like where the debate is now is at least I think a number of people would say, well, of course that can also be a harm, and that the goal is competitive prices, not the lowest lowest possible prices, but competitive prices, right? But then what I try to argue in the the one of the papers that I think you looked at is that this notion of a competitive price, it's, it's not this sort of independent social scientific principle that we can just sort of have experts figure out what it is, and then that should be the standard for antitrust harms. And, and I guess actually two things before I say why that is. One point, though, is that that even if that were the case, even if you could somehow arrive at that, that is not what antitrust law is doing as a day-to-day matter. Like you might have as a matter of theory, people saying that that's what, it, oh, of course, you know, first you say consumer welfare standard, then if you're pushed on the monopsony point, then it becomes, oh, no, 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 it's not the lowest possible price, it's the competitive price, right? But that's not what most decision makers are are actually acting on. And the way that we know that is that when when you look at um, briefs and other you know decisions that are filed on a daily basis in the antitrust space, that you do see sort of like a direct uncritical reference to, to sort of just what you know lowest consumer prices. An example of this that comes to mind is that recently the DOJ antitrust division filed briefs in these um, consolidated cases involving no poach agreements um, between uh, that franchisors imposed upon franchisees regarding hiring each other's workers. So this just like clearly is not good for workers. It decreases their mobility. Like it would be like if like McDonald's, for example, I don't know if they're one of the companies like saying to different McDonald's restaurants, like you can write a no poach so that an employee at one McDonald's can't go work at another. Exactly. For the record, I don't think McDonald's is part of that particular consolidated case, but exactly, that's exactly right. Um, and so what's so interesting is that the DOJ and antitrust division, which at the same time is saying that, okay, we're really interested in the labor market, we're really interested in in enforcing antitrust in the labor market, and we do take into account worker harms, et cetera, et cetera, right? So they just, um, they have been saying that. And they filed a brief on basically um, arguing that, um, the court should consider efficiencies of, you know, efficiencies and pro-competitive benefits of these no poach agreements, which could, which are, and, and I mean, it's extremely speculative, so I can't even say exactly what their theory is, but their theory is 100% couched in terms of consumer benefits, which I think are speculative in any case, and I don't think ultimately consumers benefit from that. But regardless, it shows that it's not symmetrical, that even if 
antitrust law institutions today, like the ones that have been sort of still shaped by the 1970s revolution, um, say that they're taking looking at the labor market symmetrically. It's not the case. They're still applying um, a consumer centric standard. Right. So I think that's the first problem is that even if they say, oh, it's really competitive prices, in fact, we're still looking at at consumers at the expense of everyone else. And then as many others have pointed out, it's in many, many, many cases, it's not even beneficial for consumers, right? That like, there's no guarantee at all that any of these cost savings, if there are cost savings, are getting passed down to consumers, as opposed to just going to shareholders or profits or um, executive salaries or whatever it may be, right? So there's empirical evidence on that that's emerging. But beyond all of that, we, even if we didn't have all of those problems, I, what I try to argue in that UCLA paper that you mentioned is that the very idea that there's a competitive price that we can just have economic experts come in and say this is competitive or not competitive, I think really breaks down if you look carefully at the way that antitrust law, basically the way I put it in the paper is that it allocates economic coordination rights. And it has always done that. You know, the legislators wanted us to do it in a particular way. The leg you know, I think the original legislative history and the purpose of the act was to allocate economic coordination rights in a way that balances those rights. That in other words, John D. Rockefeller had too many economic coordination rights, that it's dangerous for the economy and for society to have those coordination rights concentrated in one person or in one room full of men, as I think. Senator Sherman put it at one point, and that we really need to disperse those coordination rights, right? And that's exactly what giving small farmers or, or independent booksellers or workers coordination rights would do, is that it would balance and disperse those rights. So what you've, you've found and really documented with this research is that there's, there's kind of a built-in bias within antitrust where it favors bigness. It gives uh, companies, you know, internally kind of free reign to uh, exercise that kind of market power and very much disfavors smallness and decentralization. You know, if you've got this sort of hierarchical company with this centralized ownership structure, it can do it at once, but a collection of individuals coordinating in some fashion is treated in a completely uh, different manner. And, and also, I think what, you know, the other aspect of, of how you've been describing this is also just sort of reminding everybody that, that it's not as though economics can deliver us the answer in all cases, because really what we're talking about is how do we balance competing values and interests? And what are the principles that we're going to use to balance those things so that we can get to a, a fairer kind of society? First of all, so this is kind of at the meta level, and this is what I think should replace the consumer welfare standard. I don't know that I have like the exact name for it yet, but I think what should replace the consumer welfare standard is sort of two, two sets of ideas. One is the idea that antitrust law should work to disperse economic coordination rights rather than to concentrate them. And so that entails, first of all, acknowledging that that's what it's doing. And then basically saying that the bias that it has toward hierarchy and big and bigness should be reversed that, you know, and that that doesn't mean that there's not places where it really does make sense that there's like one network or something or, you know, public utilities, or then maybe we should, they should actually be public, right. And so that doesn't mean that there's not going to be very sector specific, um, 
things that we need to look at, even in those contexts, by the way, you can disperse coordination rights in more than one way. Like if you have a public utility, then you can disperse coordination rights by giving the public through sort of the legislature and other mechanisms a say in how that's run. It doesn't have to be like 10 different utilities, right? So mm -hmm. I think we have to look at different ways to disperse economic coordination rights and mechanisms to do that. I absolutely think encouraging small business and uh, producer cooperatives and worker cooperatives cooperatives is one big part of that. But I also think public coordination of markets at the, you know, permitting that to happen at the local level, the, you know, another thing that the antitrust establishment really is, you know, generally wanting to do is to, is to um, clamp down on the state action exemption, which makes it more difficult for states and localities to engage in local management of their markets. So I think we have to encourage that. And that can be another mechanism. And so, but I think that's all one. So I think reverse that principle. But I think there's a second element actually, because I don't think it's all just about dispersing coordination rights. I think that antitrust law is also about fair competition. So we need to reverse our criteria for allocating coordination rights so that we're dispersing rather than concentrating. And I think we need to be honest that there are already limits on competition in the form of the corporation, in the form of big firms, in the form of property rights, which is what essentially the courts used in the Lochner era and then really again in the Borkian era to build upon certain biases that now aren't called property rights, but they're ultimately built upon that. So that's already a limit upon antitrust law, right? So what I and I think others are saying is that let's be honest about what kind of limits we do want upon competition, because that will then be our our rules of fair competition, right? Like, do we think that fair competition, you know, should include not undercutting each other on living wages for workers or something like that, you know, like, and I think there's much more to it, but, but, you know, coming up with rules of fair competition. And so I think those two things should be kind of like the guiding meta principles for antitrust reform going forward. And then, of course, lots of policies and directions that would then flow from those principles. What do you think the prospects are? It seems to me that like part of what has to happen for those changes to happen are for working people, especially small businesses as well, to actually be engaged. I mean, for a long time, antitrust has been this like technocratic affair that happens behind closed doors and that's run by specialist lawyers and in economic scholars. And if that continues, we're not going to really get any change, except maybe at the margins. Like to do the kind of fundamental change in direction and, and rethinking of first principles that you're talking about is going to really require a much broader set of people. It's going to require everybody to be at the table. And I feel like that's a challenge, like both for you know how policymakers operate, but also just how do we engage people? How do you think about that? I, I think that's exactly right. Whether it's by design or not, I tend to think sometimes these things aren't really a matter of individual intentionality, but more like kind of group intentionality. But it's, it's absolutely right that there's a logic to this whole system that, oh, there's this objective social scientific um, result. And really, so you need like really specialist economists, and then maybe a few lawyers to like translate what they're saying for judges, right. Um, and, and that's what antitrust is. But the promising thing is like, I mean, so I think first, we have to break that down, right. So like, I'm, I'm trying to do a little bit to do that. And I think others and are, are trying to to work to break that down, right, and to break down that edifice. But then you are absolutely right that breaking down the edifice is not enough, we have to 
build a new edifice and the new edifice has to be built by many hands and not by a few hands. And that the involvement, and that's what antitrust law originally came from, was what was from a mass movement and a popular movement. And that, I mean, I threw out my sort of two ideas for replacing the consumer welfare standard. Maybe others have others. Because if we decide, basically, if we decide that there aren't these sort of independent, ideal, theoretical answers that can be given by lawyers and economists, well, then we need we need very to give answers to more specific empirical questions. We do need people who are grounded, who are in those particular sectors, right? Like that's how we determine how to govern um, those markets and sectors. So, for example, in your in your state, uh, the main lobstering union is that just you know a, a, something a cooperative that eventually became affiliated with the union was able to use this sort of obscure antitrust exemption for fisheries to be able to do that. Right. But so like we need people who know how that market works, like both the people who are out on the boats, but also the people who are, you know, working up the supply chain. I think that you would need that kind of involvement from workers, from small businesses, from people who understand a particular market, a particular supply chain, a particular distribution chain to help actually govern that market. And of course, it can't, of course, it needs to be in the public interest as well. And so of course, we do need consumer representatives to make sure that it's, it's fair and everyone's interests are represented. So I think that's the direction we need to go. I don't necessarily have, I'm afraid, like a blueprint for exactly how to get there. But I think that's what has to happen. Well, I'm encouraged by, you know, just all the growing interest in antitrust law and the fact that the word monopoly is back in our vocabulary and you know, the fact that we're talking a lot more about structural solutions and, and this idea that people who uh, work for a living really should be at the center of economic policymaking as opposed to just completely disempowered by, by sort of this corporate run system. It does seem like there's a shift going on. And so I hope, uh, I hope we continue down this road and, uh, May the main lobstering union, uh, you know, become a, a blueprint for a, a new kind of economy that could be much more, uh, you know, involve people really having control over their own labor and, and benefiting from the fruits of it. Uh, it's been so much fun. This has really been a really enlightening conversation and great to have you on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. And while you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters or click the donate button to support our work. If you like this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is edited by Lisa Gonzalez and produced by Lisa Hibba Murray and Zach Freed. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. We'll see you again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.